Stand with me, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 20. We'll read all the way down to verse number 28. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming, then cometh the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to, the, uh, to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which should put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that, all, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Father, what an incredible wonderful, hopeful portion of Scripture that we've, written this, that we've read this morning. And God, as we traverse through Scripture here one more time, I pray that you would lead, guide, and direct. God, I need your grace. I desperately need your strength this morning. I can't do this alone. I won't do this alone. I need your help. Holy Spirit of God, I yield myself to you afresh and anew. Please, guide my heart, guide my thoughts. Give me your wisdom, please. Help me, please, to be a help and comfort to your people here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jesus is our example. But I'm glad that's the case. We can watch and we can learn through Scripture on what He did and how and what He does. We can watch and learn through Jesus' pure motives. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus has complete and utter pure motives for you and for me? Thank God for that. There's no deceptive moments. There's no ulterior motives. Nothing but a heart of goodness towards us. We can watch and we can learn by the Spirit that He acts upon. Jesus Christ did everything, pleased His Father in every way. There was never a moment that He displeased His Father. That's an incredible thought. That's a challenging thought. That's an example thought. Jesus is not only our example, but He's our reason. 
He is the reason that you and I have a relationship with the Father. If you're saved this morning, you have a relationship with God the Father because of Jesus Christ. He is the reason we have access to God in prayer. Aren't you glad that you can go to God at any time, at any place? You can walk with God as you're driving to work. You can walk with God as you're walking down the footpath. You can walk with God at any time because of Jesus Christ. He's our mediator. He is the reason, truly, that we see God's grace in our lives. He's the reason that we have God's help and God's favor. As we take steps of faith, God truly gives His grace, His strength. He is the reason that we have eternal life. Hallelujah. He is the reason we will be resurrected should the Lord tarry. One day we will be caught up with Him in the air. We, if the Lord tarry and we breathe our last breath here on this earth, we will be resurrected. Incredible thought. Paul comforts and teaches the church in Corinth here. He teaches them the principle and the reason why we have that hope. We've stated this principle. We've talked about the rapture countless times over these last five years, eight years of ministry here. We've mentioned it over and over again. But why is it that we can have hope of that resurrection? Why is it that we can have hope of that of the glorious rapture? Why is that? Why is it that we have that hope? In verse number 20, we see Jesus or Paul teaching a principle. I have two points this morning, the first of which is the principle taught. The principle taught is shown clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 20, please. Notice what Scripture says. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the, notice this word, first fruits of them that slept. Why is that word first fruits so important? Remember, if you will, that Paul was a Pharisee. He grew up studying, learning, and practicing the law. He knew the law very, very well. He was taught by the best scholars who could truly teach the finest parts of the law. And as he learned the law, he understood very well an offering called the First Fruits Offering. This was a feast, a celebration time. The, first, the Feast of First Fruits was the third of seven annual feasts celebrated by the Jews. It was associated with the Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was kept on the morrow after the Sabbath. In other words, it was associated with the first day of the week. The Lord Jesus was in the tomb on the Sabbath after Passover. He rose from the dead the next day. 
That very morning, the priest would have taken a sheaf of corn from the field and waved it over the whole field as a token that the whole harvest would eventually be reaped. This feast truly pointed to the very day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits. He is the one that resurrected. The Bible teaches us that there is three stages of this harvest. As they had this feast of the first fruits, it would represent several things. First of all, it would represent the first fruits. That's where that sheaf of corn would come in. And that's why they would wave it before the Lord over the field, signifying and by faith trusting that God would give a harvest. Which leads to secondly, the great harvest, the harvest that they would take and that they would, glee, uh, that they would enjoy the fruits of that harvest, of that crop. And then the gleanings. God told them not to harvest all of the fields. God told them that things that might have fallen out of the baskets or out of the things that they would use to collect or even the corners of the field to leave those for gleanings. Those would be used often for the poor, the widows, and the fatherless. It would be used to help support those who were struggling as they could go when they could gather the gleanings there off of the field. You know, the Bible teaches us that this feast of first fruits, thinking about the harvest of the first of the first of the fruit, waving that sheaf before the Lord, and then the actual harvest and then the gleanings thereof would be a wonderful correlation, a wonderful picture of what the Bible calls the first resurrection. In Revelation chapter 20, verse number 6, the Bible teaches us this, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The Bible talks about a first resurrection. But that's all the way at Revelation chapter 20. There's multiple seemingly resurrections that the Bible speaks of. So how does this fit in with the first fruits or this first resurrection? Remember, this is a picture of the first fruits. And what did we say the first the harvest was? It was three stages. The first shea- the first we- a- a sheaf of corn, uh, the first sheaf of crop that would be weighed before the Lord. And then of course the harvest itself and then finally the gleanings. Such as a picture of the three parts of the first fruits. The first part, of course, was the Lord's resurrection. Secondly, we see the rapture, as we read about just a moment ago. And you can look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this afternoon and study verses 13 through, uh, through 18. And you can read about that wonderful, glorious harvest in which we will be caught up with Christ, as we've mentioned. But then there's a gleanings. That gleanings is the resurrection of those saved during the tribulation period in which they too will be resurrected. What a powerful and what a wonderful thing it is that there is a first resurrection pictured by the first fruits. God truly gave 
the, instru- the Levites' instructions to take a sheaf of corn. And that sheaf of corn would not consist of just one ear of corn, but rather a sheaf of corn. Be a bundle of corn, if we could put it that way. The Bible teaches us that's exactly what happened on that day in which the Lord was crucified and then, of course, would be risen. The Bible teaches us in Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 52, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. The Bible teaches us that when Jesus Christ arose, there was a sheaf, there was a first fruit, there was a moment in which would picture what was going to happen because as Jesus Christ resurrected, others, the Bible says, resurrected after his resurrection. What was that a symbol of? That was a symbol of the harvest to come. That was a symbol of what was going to take place. It was the sheaf itself. But then the Bible speaks of that great harvest We read it just a few moments ago in verse number 23 in our text. Let's read that verse one more time. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. That's us. That's the rapture. We truly will be caught up with him. We will be resurrected should the Lord tarry. This is all saints who have us, uh, uh, whose life in the flesh has ceased but their eternal life with god is existence they will one day be uh, be resurrected from the dead in rapture what an incredible thing that is what a powerful thing that is god truly teaches that what one beautiful time that there will be a great harvest and then those who died in tribulation they will be part of that first resurrection as we mentioned a moment ago But why is this necessary? Why is this important that we understand that Jesus Christ is the first fruits? Notice what the Bible says in verse number 21, if you would, with me in our text. The Bible says, For since by man come death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Paul links here two incredible events. Two events that shape humankind. The first one is man, man alone. A man named Adam. A man who chose to sin. And as Adam chose to sin, the Bible teaches us in Romans 5.12, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Because of Adam's sin, that brought sin into this world. That brought sin into mankind, and truly we deal with that sin. We deal with a flesh that has been programmed in a sin nature. And we struggle with that, do we not? We battle that. We war against that. Even as saved, born-again children of God that's been given a new nature in Christ, we still battle at that programming, at that nature that our flesh has been programmed after year after year after year of living in that nature of sin. Adam was truly the one that brought sin into the world. 
But just as by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. There's a couple important principles. I want to be a little doctrinal this morning because I want you to see this truth because it's an incredible, incredible fitting together of how God puts his pieces this together. If man brought sin into the world, in order for the resurrection to happen for us as men, a man needed to resurrect. This is why Jesus had to be fully man and fully God. This is why Jesus was conceived in a virgin's womb. Why? Because he had to have the body of a man, but yet the nature of God, not the sin nature that you and I have been born with, passed down from our father and our, and our, grandparent, our grandfather and, all, and, and great-grandfather and on and on we go. From generation to generation since Adam, this has been passed down and truly it is something that we rec- or that we have to deal with and something that we have to reconcile. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin birth. He did not have that sin nature that you and I had. He is God, and yet he is fully man. He became truly man without ceasing to be God. Had he not been truly man in every sense of the word, he could not have died, been buried, and been raised again. Had he not been God in every sense of the word, the life he had laid down on the cross would have been but a finite life and and inadequate to atone for the sins of the entire human race. Paul clearly saw the connection here between the ruin introduced into human history by Adam and the resurrection assured for all by the redeem uh, 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 by all by the redemption of another man Jesus Christ. This is truly a process that is explained in the law called the kinsman redeemer. And again, God puts this all together. He's a fulfillment of the law. I'm going to teach a little bit here this morning because it's incredible how beautiful this picture comes together. This principle is underlined by the kinsman redeemer. What is that? And this is told beautifully in the story of Ruth. Hold your finger there in 1 Corinthians 15 and go back to Ruth if you would, please. In the story of Ruth, we hear of a man named Boaz. Boaz was a kinsman. He would be a kinsman redeemer with Ruth. And the Bible teaches us in Ruth chapter 2, verse number 20, look at that one verse. And we're not going to read the whole or go through the whole story this morning. You can read through it. It's not a long, long book uh, this afternoon. It's a beautiful book and a powerful book as well. But it gives truly this picture of what Jesus Christ did for us so we could rise again so beautifully in ruth chapter 2 verse number 20 the bible says and naomi said unto her daughter-in-law blessed be he of the lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead and naomi said unto her the man is near of kin unto us one of our next kinsmen this is speaking about boaz a man named boaz a man whom we see had much resources a wealthy man a man of esteem, a man of a man with a good name. And the Bible teaches us that he was one of the kinsmen to 
Ruth, to Naomi and to Ruth. The Bible teaches us that Boaz chose to play the role of a kinsman redeemer. This role was to do several things. It was to purchase, propagate, and protect. But in order to enter into that role and to purchase, propagate, and protect, there were several things that were needed in order to meet the requirements to fulfill that kinsman redeemer. First of all, he needed to have a resources or the resources to be able to redeem. This was an expensive thing as he would purchase all of the property that he would be purchasing of the one in whom he would be the redeemer for. He would be the one who would be caring for the one whom he would be redeeming. He would be one who would be taking care of all of the finances, all of the debts. He would be the one that would be absolving and taking in all of those things. And so he had to have some means to be able to care for all of those things in whom he was redeeming. And the Bible tells us that Boaz was a man with great resources. The Bible tells us in verse number 1 of chapter 2, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Boaz was a man who could absolve, who could bring in the burdens and care for Ruth and her family. He was the one who could redeem as a kinsman redeemer. He had the resources. But not only did he have to have the resources, but secondly, he had to have the resolve to redeem. In other words, there had to be something in his heart that was resolved to redeem, no matter the cost, no matter the expense, no matter what was going to go into all the legalities to be that kinsman redeemer. He had to be resolved to redeem. The Bible teaches us that Boaz was such a man. In Ruth chapter 3, we're not going to go through the whole story, but long story short, Ruth went and met Boaz in the middle of the night. Boaz, after a feast, laid down in the stables, and and Ruth came down and laid herself at, uh, at his feet. He woke up, suddenly realized that someone was at his feet there laying in the cool of the night, and it was Ruth. And long story short, there was a conversation that was had, and Boaz recognized that there was an opportunity to redeem, to purchase, as it were, Ruth as a virtuous woman and to bring her into his family. There was that opportunity, and Boaz chose or resolved to make that purchase. The Bible tells us in Ruth chapter 3, verse number 18, as Ruth came back and told Naomi, her mother-in-law, what was happening, the Bible says, Then said she, Naomi, sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. Look at chapter 4. Then Boaz went up to the gate, and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one. Quickly, there was another kinsman that was closer to Boaz, and in order for Boaz to be the one that could redeem that 
kinsmen needed to relinquish those rights or to say, I'm not going to redeem. I'm going to forego those things. And so Boaz had to go through the legality of going and making sure that this other kinsman was not going to redeem. Let's continue. Uh, Host such a one and turn aside and... Uh, uh, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit ye down here. And they sat down and he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, before it, uh, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem, uh, redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So what did Boaz do? Boaz went and he talked to the kinsmen among the elders by the gates of the city. And he says, there's this man. He is able to redeem it. Here's, the, here's what is needed. There's a field. Uh, but if you buy that field, not only do you get the field, you also get Ruth. She's a Moabite. Uh, she is from the country of Moab. And this man looked and said, I would like the field, but I don't want Ruth. I'm not going that direction. I don't want her testimony upon my family. Kind of a sad statement when you think about it. She was a virtuous woman. She was a woman with great character. A woman who chose God. And yet, he rejected and so Boaz had to have the resolve to do so. The Bible teaches us that they went through the formality of that man giving up his inheritance or his right to redeem it. And so therefore, Boaz now, as we saw in verse number 1 of chapter 2, had the right to redeem. We're going to come back to Christ here in just a minute, so don't miss this. It's all very important. And Naomi had a kinsman of her, fa of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. Again, there's that connection. There's that right to redeem. There's a connection there. So Boaz redeemed. Boaz purchased the land. Boaz purchased Ruth, if we could put it that way. He redeemed her brought her into his family. And because of that marriage that would take place, King David would be born. The children of, or the children of David, of course. What an incredible, incredible story how God used Boaz and Ruth. Beautiful picture. For you see, Boaz is a picture or type of Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer what does that mean well remember he had to first of all had have have what the right to redeem this is why jesus needed to be born physically as a man why 
because we can trace all of our ancestry to man. All of us go back to Adam. All of us. All of us do. He had to be born as man to qualify as a kinsman redeemer according to the law. When we get saved, God puts us in Christ. So by natural birth, we are born subject to the curse. By the new birth, we are born again, born from above, born of the Spirit, born of God, born subject to new life in Christ. What an incredible thing it is. Jesus Christ had to be that kinsman redeemer that had the ancestry, the heritage that could be traced to Adam. And truly he was. He was born of a woman. Yes, his father was God. But truly the Bible teaches us that he was of the lineage of the house of David. Our ancestry is connected. We are connected with Christ as men. But secondly, the kinsman redeemer needed to have the resolve to redeem. He had to be determined to redeem. Does not Isaiah teach us the resolve of Jesus Christ? The Bible teaches us in Isaiah chapter 50, verse number 7, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ set his face like a flint. He was resolved. He was determined. He was truly resolved to redeem no matter the cost. And truly the cost was great. But he was willing. He was resolved to follow the will of his father. Did he not say in the garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done? He was determined to follow his father's will. He had the resolve. He had the right. And then I love this. Thirdly, he has the resources to redeem. Our kinsman redeemer redeemed us by purchase on the cross of Calvary and by power. When he rose from the dead, having smitten the enemy with his death blow, we are redeemed by purchase at his first coming. We shall be redeemed by power at his second coming. There would be small satisfaction in his affected our purchase if he did not have the power to expel the enemy from our property. Now he has per- uh, his purchased possession. That is one reason why the millennial reign is essential. The Lord fully intends to take over the property he has purchased as well as the people he has purchased. You see, not only does he purchase us, but he's purchased the whole world, if we can put it that way. What an incredible thing it is. He is going to have possession of it all. He is going to rule and reign as king. Why? Because he's the kinsman redeemer. Thank God for that. He's our kinsman redeemer this morning. He is the one that was qualified to come and to redeem. He was the one that was qualified to come and to bring us salvation. Why? Because he was the fulfilling of the law. What an incredible God we have. And because he fulfilled the law, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. We have hope 
of a glorified body this morning, not because of a, not because of a simple man, but because of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment, who was the first fruits of the resurrection, and we truly can look forward to a body without aches and pains. Amen. We've been packing. There's some aches and pains, amen? Look forward to no more aches, no more pains, no more tears, no more crying. We can look forward to hope with a wonderful, perfect body with the Lord. Hallelujah. Because of Christ. The Bible teaches us that there's a principle that was foretold about the hope of seeing Jesus Christ. But I love this. Paul almost 2,000 years ago, foretells of the prophecy yet to come. Notice what the Bible tells us back in our text in verse 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse number 24 with me. Then cometh the end. We'll be caught away with him, the Bible says in verse number 23. We will be with him, then cometh the end. One of the wonderful and beautiful things about the Word of God is seeing each word so perfectly put in place. The word then is a powerful and a perfect word, fitly put. That word then doesn't speak of immediately like it will happen. There are some today that foolishly believe that there will be no millennial rule and reign of Christ. They're what they're called amillennialists. It's a mouthful there. It's a tongue twister. Try saying that 14 times quick. Amen? But there are some that believe that, foolishly so, because it's very clear in the Word of God. But the Bible says then. That word then isn't immediately then. It is then after an interval. It's like saying, I'm going to take a step in a moment then. And then taking it. Not immediately, but waiting for an interval of time. That's exactly how God puts this word here, there, in. He puts that word then in, saying that it, Jesus is going to set up his millennial rule and grain, but there's going to be an interval of time. What is going to be that interval of time? It's called the tribulation. It's going to be seven years. The moment the rapture happens, that clock immediately begins to count down from seven years, and at the end of that seven years, Jesus is coming back. That's the then. That's the interval of time. And that's so important to understand. You can read through the book of Revelation. You can piece that together. You can read through the book of Matthew, uh, especially chapter number 24, and you can see what's going to take place during the tribulation time. It is clear. It is plain. It is simple truth. There will be a time of tribulation here on this earth. After the return of Christ, there's that pause of seven years before Jesus Christ comes. Then cometh the end. I love this. When he, speaking of Jesus Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and authority and power. This is an exciting thought right here. I am so thankful that we have a victor uh, a victor as Savior. I'm so thankful that we can sing the story, Victory in Jesus Christ. Why can we sing that? Because the power of Christ is real. The Bible tells us that He is going to put down all power, all authority, all 
rule. He's going to put it all down. All that the world thinks, all the power that they are corruptly drinking from, drunken with that power and that influence, especially in our day and age today where people are trying to exercise and to gain even more power through all the different things that are taking place. The pandemic is one of those things in which has been a drunkenness of a corruption of power, of wanting more power, more control, of more authority, and truly it has been over and over again. And we've seen that and we've seen things come out to be and to play into that power struggle that man is clamoring for. But that power, all all the wealth, all the things in which the world says you must have, Jesus is going to bring it all to naught. It's going to come down. It's going to crash and it's going to crash hard. And the Bible tells us that Satan, the beast, and the false prophet that will rule during the tribulation will be put down by the power and the might of Jesus Christ. Oh, they're going to come, but Jesus Christ is going to come on a white horse and he's going to come not as a lamb as he did. He's going to come as a lion. And that rule and that reign will truly be victorious. Satan will be defeated once again at the end of the millennial rule and reign of Christ. Truly, it will be a time in which Jesus rules and reigns in which will be a beautiful millennial time of peace. Could you imagine that? Ten centuries of peace. Incredible. Jesus will be the prince of peace, ruling with a rod of iron. Think about that. He'll be the Prince of Peace. He'll be the one that is ruling. He'll be the one that we get to serve. The Sermon on the Mount will be fulfilled completely and fully as normal life. Think about that. We read the Sermon on the Mount and the wonderful beauty of the loving kindness and that will be normal that will be what we will have every single day it will be a wonderful peaceful blessed time with christ as king the bible will be the core of every curriculum (laughs) every curriculum you want to learn physics first of all you need to learn the bible You want to learn history? There's no better book than the Bible. You want to learn algebra? There's no better place to start than the Bible. Every core, every curriculum, no matter what it is you look at, their Bible will be the core at all of the curriculum that will be taught. There will be no kicking the Bible out uh, out of schools. The Bible will be the schoolmaster. What a powerful thing. Fruitfulness that this world has never seen outside of the garden will be experienced by the world. Rivers that were once dry will be flowing again. The Dead Sea will be a living sea. It will be a time in which pilgrimages will take place to go to Jerusalem and include a tour of the dreaded Valley of Hinnom as people will see the terrible end of those who defy the Lord, as that will be the place where Satan and the beasts and the false prophets will have perished along with the era, their armies. 
It'll be a reminder over and over again of the line of the tribe of Judah. The deserts will blossom. The harvest will be bountiful. Spirit-filled and anointed men and women will teach the arts and the sciences. It'll be an age truly of peace, prosperity, and progress unlike anything mankind has experienced before. It'll be a wonderful, flourishing time, blessed and filled with the grace of God. It seems incredible people will grow tired of all this. But in the end, there will be a widespread revolt. Satan will be released and men by the millions will flock to his standard. For as time goes on, more and more millions of people will be born who do not get born again. They grow up unregenerate. As children who grew up in Christian homes sometimes become gospel-hardened. It's a sad word right there. But unfortunately, it's too true. So people growing up in the millennial earth will become glory-hardened. In ever-increasing numbers, the unregenerate will begin to murmur against the inflexible laws of the kingdom. Memory of what the world was like when sin reigned and death by sin will fade. Millions born during the golden age will have no more memory of the miseries and horrors of the premillennial times than children born today have of the first world war. People born but not born again will find themselves with passions they cannot express with sin natures they cannot indulge. Increasingly, a spirit of rebellion will smolder, the malcontents afraid to express their lust and longings openly will begin to congregate at the far reaches of the planet, as far from the central glory as possible. There they will nurse their growing hatred for holiness and godliness. Then, Satan will be released from his prison hell the rebels will hail him as a savior one who can emancipate them from the hated reign of righteousness they will flock to his banners they will mobilize and march on jerusalem their swelling hordes are contemptuously labeled gog and magog by the holy spirit perhaps to remind them of the most famous of all former anti-semitic campaigns and its disastrous results Deluded by Satan, drunk with the wine of rebellion, determined to return the world to its former state, they will approach the holy city, but their rebellion will come to a swift and an inglorious end. For you see, the Bible continues to say in verse number 25, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Satan will be destroyed. Satan will be defeated. The Bible teaches us in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 9, Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, Jesus Christ, and hath given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about this for just a moment, my friends. Every knee is going to bow. It doesn't matter who you speak to that is the most hardened to the gospel, hardened to scripture. It doesn't matter who it is. But one day, the Bible teaches us every knee is going to bow. Every knee is going to bow before our Savior and that He is going to confess that He is Lord of all. Every knee. It doesn't matter who it is. Satan himself will have to bend his knee. The imps of hell will bow their knee. Every person, everyone will bow their knee and confess that He is Lord lord of all my friends that will happen just as much as john 3 16 is true this morning philippians chapter 2 verses number 9 through 11 is true this morning thank god for that we serve a savior who is victorious and who will be worshiped by all and truly adored and yea despised in hell for all of eternity but yet knowing that he is the true eternal one last enemy verse number 26 that shall be destroyed i love this is death. For you see, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because there will be a second resurrection. What is a second resurrection? That is where all saved and unsaved are resurrected. Everyone. Everyone will be resurrected. The Bible says, I am he, in verse number 18, that liveth and was dead. Jesus said, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. We will enjoy a glorified body. Those who are not saved will sadly once again be reunited with their body and then burn forever in a lake of fire. Horrible. Eternal damnation but we'll have a glorified body. We will have one that truly, we don't have to worry about a second death. The Bible tells us in Revelation 20, 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. God truly is the victor this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse number 27 and 28, and we're done. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted. We should put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall also the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. Think about this for just a moment. Spirit is submissive to the Son. And the Son is submissive to God the Father. After a millennial rule and reign, after the battle defeating Satan, casting him into the lake of fire, God is going to take, Jesus Christ is going to take the kingdom. And say, here, Father, it's yours. What a powerful way to honor the Father. To stand for righteousness. To stand on the promises of God. Send Lord. 
than to say, here, Father, I want you to have it. That's a beautiful thing. And I love how he ends this. That God may be all in all. Christ is all I need. He's all I need. He's all we need. What do we need this morning? We need Jesus Christ. He's all we need. One day, we'll raise our hosannas and our our hallelujahs with a heavenly host forever and ever and ever. Once again, as a family of God. Once again. Church, I don't know of any greater hope to leave you this morning. God's parting our ways. He's divinely led. But it's only for a moment. One day. One day. We'll be singing hallelujah and hosannas to the king. Glory, glory, glory to the Lord God Almighty. On the streets of gold. With him as our king. It's coming. It's coming soon. I don't know when the rapture's happening. No man does. But until we meet him in the air, we have hope this morning. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father,